Hello and welcome to the Food Connections podcast, the podcast that connects you with the food you eat. I'm Dr Laura Wyness, a registered nutritionist and one of Scotland's regional food tourism ambassadors. I'm interested in all things related to food and nutrition and I love learning more about the food we eat, how it's made and getting to know the people involved in making our food. In this episode, I'm joined by Kirsty Campbell, who runs a community interest company, Seabuckthorn Scotland, based in East Lothian. East Lothian is in southeast Scotland, just to the east of Edinburgh, and it has a beautiful coastline bordering the Firth of Forth. Seabuckthorn is a fascinating plant with bright orange berries and lots of thorns, and it grows really well along coastal regions around the world, including Scotland. If you've not heard of sea buckthorn before, don't worry, Kirsty explains more about what sea buckthorn is, how it can be used and some of the benefits of the plant. Kirsty has a fascinating background, having spent 15 years working as a professional humanitarian worker, including 10 years on mission in the Middle East. She first came across sea buckthorn in 2010 as part of a UN logistics mission to assist with the floods in Pakistan. When she returned home to Scotland in 2013, she found sea buckthorn berries growing within minutes of where she lived, and that these amazing berries, a unique source of nutrition, were largely being overlooked and in some cases destroyed. While our population is suffering from increasing challenges in heart health, diabetes, obesity and mental health, Kirsty decided to apply her passion for food security, local solutions and herbal healing, plus her so far underutilised chemistry degree, to work in founding Seabuckthorn Scotland to tackle these issues. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. So I'm delighted this morning to welcome Kirsty Campbell to this episode. Hi, how are you this morning, Kirsty? Morning, Laura. Not bad, thank you. A lovely sunny morning in November when we're recording this. So you've been quite busy, I believe, recently with Sea Buckthorn. Yeah, we have about three months worth of harvest time, which you think it sounds like quite a long time, and when you're doing it, it is, but it. It actually passes very, very quickly. And when it does finish, there's always a bit of time you need just to sort of take the thorns out of your fingers and uh, <laughs> get ready for the next things off. Just to breathe a sigh of relief and relax. Um, well, it sounds quite intensive. We'll get on to talking about seabock thorn and what it is a little bit later on. But first of all, do you want to kind of explain a little bit about your background? Because it is quite unusual, shall we say. I've heard a little bit about your story, but do you want to explain your background and your experience and, and how you ended up? working with Seabuckthorn? So, well, I actually started off doing a chemistry degree in Edinburgh. And I have to say, I didn't really enjoy it very much. And I got involved with Officers Training Corps, which, you know, through that, I met people who were who were doing what I thought were more interesting things than sitting <laughs> in a lab. And I came across humanitarian aid work whilst I was volunteering in Bosnia with a friend and basically got the bug for, for humanitarian aid work, went on to do a master's in it. And then I worked across mainly the Middle East, also North Africa and Pakistan, working with the International Committee of the Red Cross and the World Food Programme, along with another medical NGO. And I was doing that for a period of about 15 years, 10 of which were back-to-back missions on the front lines of different conflicts, such as Gaza, Iraq, Syria, Pakistan during the floods. Pakistan was where I first came across Seabuckthorn as we were responding to these huge floods. I mean, poor country, just as they've had, they had in 2010. The floods swept all the way through from the north down to the south of the country, sweeping away roads and whole communities. And we were providing aid by helicopters, fixed wing 
aircraft, hovercraft, <laughs> tractors, whichever way was possible. And so we we were due to provide some food during the winter. The Americans were very keen we were going to provide food during the winter to communities in the north. And the National Disaster Management Authority, they know their country very well. And they said, absolutely not. These people in the north have been surviving off sea buckthorn and nuts basically during the winter for generations. And if you start to provide food to the people in the mountains during the winter, they will become reliant on aid. They'll lose their coping mechanisms. So you'll be doing more harm than good. And I thought, well, what is this sea buckthorn? You know, <laughs> never heard of that. And I went on to work in Libya and two years working on Syria from Turkey before really I came across or thought about it again. But in the meantime, I have to say, I was much more mindful of the mechanisms that they have in country, you know, what locally available foods that we don't think of that, you know, not just in the markets, but the weeds. You know. And anyway, I came back to Scotland and was trying to work out what I was going to do next, walking my spaniel along the beach and and I came across, amongst other things, and came across sea buckthorn actually in Scotland, and a huge amount of it on the East Coast. And I tried one. I wasn't quite sure when I first tasted one, I have to say, because it's a very unusual flavour. But strangely, after that one, you just want to try another one. It's, it's really sour. It's kind of citrusy, but absolutely delicious. And you can feel the nutrition of it straight away. It's almost like having a sort of an intravenous vitamin C or something. <laughs> so absolutely intrigued, did, started to research into this strange little berry. And I was just absolutely astonished by all of the different properties that they have. I mean, I don't think there's another plant that every single part of the plant has a different benefit for us, despite the fact that it, it's looking like this sort of jaggy, kind of strange looking plant, perhaps for for people who are, are not accustomed to it. Kind of a, a big kind of bush, isn't it? With yeah, very big thorns. With very long thorns. Some of the thorns are probably, yeah, certainly longer than longer than my fingers. And I think I've got quite long fingers. <laughs> but yeah, very, very well protected. But you know, again, interesting thing that sea buckthorn forced me back to getting back into some of the chemistry that I'd previously learned and getting interested again in the context of sea buckthorn, which has been a really exciting journey. So I guess it sounds like your background obviously has has helped what you're doing now in terms of looking into sea buckthorn and using it and getting that interest in the berry and all that it does and the whole plant, as you say. You've set up the Sea Buckthorn Scotland. Do you want to explain a little bit about that before we get into what Sea Buckthorn actually is? And so just explain the organisation now that you are director of. Sure. So in response to having seen there was so much of the Sea Buckthorn and then finding that it was actually needing to be managed and that there was quite a lot of money that was being spent annually you know, by the council and different landowners to cut it back and try and control it. You know, that whole parody of, you know, there being this huge, uh, the huge benefits of it. Mm-hmm. And then also that being wasted, you know, it just seemed so wrong. And I don't know, I, I guess I took pity on it. I felt sorry for it. I felt a bit like a burnt out aid worker who was, sort of, <laughs> didn't really have a purpose, you know, but still had something to give. And I maybe I then identified with this thorny little plant that <laughs> was fighting on. So, yeah, I set up Seabuckthorn Scotland Social Enterprise in order to basically that we would harvest some of the material along with the council's support in the areas that they needed it to be cut back and then try to use as much of the material as we possibly could. So through main juices and then oils from the seeds and the pulp and then where there is an area where we don't have an immediate purpose for the material, then doing as much research, both looking at 
sort of things that other people have, have written, but also then doing some study with local universities within the UK. Yeah, because it sounds like there's so much still to learn about the berry and the plant itself. It's great that there's more research being done. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit more about the history or, or kind of sea buckthorn, where it originated from and where, where you can find it? So I think it's about 4,000 BC. It's some wow. of the earliest records in Tibetan medicine, where they've got some sort of concoctions with sea buckthorn and licorice roots and various other I think it's, it's five different ingredients they were using within their medicine then within the west it's not it's been relatively new that it's been sort of rediscovered or or utilized I don't know the reason why it's very interesting it's like one of those mysteries but it has been around in the UK since at least the post-glacial period you know which is a good good amount of time a while ago. <laughs> um, and it's a pioneer plant so you know, it can grow in areas that other plants can't grow. What it does need is light, but it can tolerate, you know, temperatures of certainly between minus 40 and plus 40 degrees. It can tolerate sandy soils, a whole range of different pHs, alkali and acid. It's also salty air and soils, which is where it thrives along the coastlines, where the other trees or shrubs can't actually manage to survive. Buckthorn comes into itself, but it's a nitrogen fixing plant. It's got these amazing rhizome roots mm-hmm. that underground, which have bacteria called Frankia bacteria, which fixes nitrogen at a much higher rate than things like soybeans that we think of as enriching the land. So it's very good at sort of cleaning the air and enriching the ground under it. In terms of the medicinal properties of it, <laughs> the Russians actually took, they got a military program around the time of the first space mission so I mean the first man who went to space the Russian space man had sea buckthorn and cottage cheese as part of his space food wow um, <laughs> prior to that there's all sorts of myths and legends about I mean the name itself hippophay ramnoides or hippophay ramnoids it means shining horse okay um, and that comes from soldiers coming back from battle with these exhausted you know absolutely <laughs> shattered horses that they didn't expect to survive for another war and they would turn them out in into the pasture into the woods and so they didn't expect them to come back and they were amazed when these horses then returned some months later with these bright eyes and shiny coats looking incredibly healthy having lived off the sea buckthorn so this you know sort of like those indicators that come through and that's I find so fascinating because the you know the leaves are one of the areas that you know, as as humans, we're still understanding now, we're still researching, but it was mm-hmm. known all that time ago by Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan, all these great commanders who did all, all lots, of, lots of awful things, but they were certainly very strong and they yeah. had their armies on something. And need the right foods to eat. <laughs> well, indeed. I mean, the Chinese have done a huge amount of research as well. They had it as their national drink in the Beijing Olympics. And that year they won the most gold medals, which... I mean, perhaps when it's based in China, we have to say that they all they did very well anyway. <laughs> their national team was buckthorn, and they got them in the that year. So, sea buckthorn grows in kind of the, the climates that you mentioned, kind of minus forty to plus forty. So, is it found in kind of Russia and China yeah, and there's, there's a lot northern Europe? Is it? Yeah. Okay. Um, Norway, Finland, Canada—they've been growing it also as well. Okay. Denmark, Germany—they grow it as a crop. 
there's two farmers down south, one in Essex and one in Cornwall, who are growing it as a crop as well. And it's um, one of the difficulties, in, I suppose, you mentioned the, the long thorns. Is one of the difficulties actually harvesting it? Or how do you harvest it? Well, it's certainly, it's certainly quite a painful, painful experience. Yeah. <laughs> there's no escape from that. There are farmers who have developed thorn-free varieties. However, they find that then the problem is the birds will come and take them. Oh, okay. um, so there is a purpose of the thorns to keep the berries safe. The particular permit that we have from the council allows us to trim back, basically prune the bushes annually, which they need to have anyway in order to let the light in and to ensure the biodiversity amongst the ground underneath because they can create a very big sort of umbrella of very thick foliage on top that then almost kills off the rest of the plant. So they benefit from having a good old prune once a year. We prune back the branches. We put them in our army of freezers, which we have about two miles away from the beach. And then about two days, two or three days later, manually, we then have to knock the branch to vibrate it to get the berries off. Berry bashing, as we call it. <laughs> Whereas actually the berries, the berries aren't damaged at all. You know, they're absolutely hard as anything. I mean, and, okay. and they so they then, then come off the uh, branches with the leaves and everything. And then it's a huge job then sorting through to take the berries away from the leaves and the, the branches. There's other foragers who who have a different process. They wait until much later in the harvest time when the berries have started to go white and there'll be some of them still out now. And they go with or without gloves at a big bucket and they will milk the plant <laughs> to milk the berries into the bucket and then sieve that off. But why we choose to do it the way that we do is, well, one, the, the shrubs need to be trimmed back annually anyway. It's good for them. And it's good for the rest of the biodiversity and, and so on within the mm. conservation area. Two, then it's the most hygienic way. And it's also capturing the berries when they have the highest level of vitamin A, C and E. And they have a beautiful sort of citrusy note rather than when they are later on in the harvest, when these properties go down a bit and the oil starts to go up. But the scent of the juice is very different and certainly we much prefer it with the citrusy scent rather than more sort of oily, sort of fermented scent. But I mean, yeah. the birds will continue to eat them right through till February time. And they provide also, you know, an important food stock for the birds in that sort of hungry gap after the red mm-hmm. fruits are all gone and before the sort of spring growth comes through. Mm-hmm. So, and know, I guess the, it might help the birds have a shiny feathers, I guess, and bright eyes absolutely. if they do eat the berries. Absolutely. And you'll see they're actually quite drunk off the berries after they've been fermenting for a while on the bush. Okay, I'll look out for that. So in Scotland then, so you can find them generally along coastal regions. And is it at this time of year that you should be looking out for kind of bright orange berries? Is that right? Or how do you spot them? Where's the best I mean, place ripen, to find them? Well, they ripen sort of from, let's say, about August onwards mm-hmm. and after the first frost they will go from this beautiful bright orange to the start to turn white and I mean, say so you can still when you're going out for a walk you can still you know still pick one have a smell of it put it on your hands it'll be very oily by this stage now whereas mm-hmm. during the earlier period sort of August to October you still you can't really the, the berries don't have much of a stem they're basically fixed onto the branch almost directly and they have a seed and they've got juice and then they've got a skin around them. So that it's not like, I guess, with a blueberry where you've got a bit of flesh to sort of mm-hmm. to hold on to. So they very easily switch. They're very difficult to actually pick off branch by hand. But you can, in the earlier period, before the frost, you'd be able to 
probably do it with a couple of them when you're walking past. A lot of the golf courses have sea buckthorn in between them. So pretty much, I mean, all the way, all the way around now, there's, you'll find a lot of the sort of southeast area, but there is also right up north, you'll find some if you look okay. far enough. So can people go out and pick them themselves or do you have to have a license? You mentioned earlier that you've got an agreement with a council. So for personal foraging, you know, for small amounts, you're absolutely fine. But for any material that's going to be used for commercial use or in large amounts, you should always speak to the land owner and have an agreement with them, obviously, um, <laughs> taking their, their materials. And also just bearing in mind that there's lots of other users of them. You know, there's other mammals as well as birds that are going to be living off them. So to make sure that the bit that is taken is not a huge amount in comparison to all of the other needs of the community. And what do you do with the sea buckthorn berries that you pick? Do you make them into juice or other products? Yes. Yeah, so we have, we've got two raw juices that we do, the pure juice, the buckshot, as it's known, <laughs> which is just cold pressed, pure, deliciously clean, very, very sour juice. And then we have the Buck Russian, which was my own bit of a sort of an invention after researching quite a lot of different recipes used in, in other countries. It's based on a moors, which mm-hmm. is traditionally drunk in, I mean, countries sort of like Ukraine, also in Siberia, there's a lot, they make a lot during the winter to, to keep the berries or the juice during the winter. Basically, you've got the juice and then you're also getting an extraction from the pulp and the seeds as well. And then you add some sugar. We use organic walking sugar and we also add organic fresh ginger root. And it creates something that's much easier to have as a way of taking your daily vitamins. And if you're having a 50 ml shot, it's not any more sugar than it would be in a glass of orange juice. So, so it's, it's quite a tart kind of flavour. It's quite a sharp flavour. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the, the butt Russian is... And the closest way we could say it's sort of like a healthy Haribo, perhaps, because you've got okay. that sweet and the sour in there. But the pure juice is definitely, I think, sort of lemon juice type of sourness. I and mean, it uh-huh. can be used in a similar way to, to lemon juice. And it's going to give you a big kind of kick of vitamin C. And what's the other kind of key nutrients that so sea buckthorn gives? Yeah, the highest, uh, certainly vitamin C, a 50 ml shot is basically all your vitamin C for the day. So... Uh, use it sparingly but it's also equivalent to having the omega-7 tablets that people get for dry eyes you know having a 50 ml shot of sea buckthorn is basically like taking one of those if not a bit higher than that which is very good for lubrication throughout the body as well there's lots uh-huh. of new research on omega-7 encourage people to have a wee look on it <laughs> and is omega-7 the one that is quite rare to find in foods am I right in thinking that Yes, you find it in macadamia nuts and sea buckthorn pretty much. I mean, our body does produce some itself, but the type of omega-7 that sea buckthorn has is very specific to sea buckthorn. Because we talk a lot about omega-3 being very good for heart health and eye health and brain function, and that's found in oily fish. That's one of the main sources in the diet, but sea buckthorn has a range of the omega fatty acids. I mean, it it does contain three, six, seven and nine. Okay. But it's just that the, the seven is particularly high. The three, six and nine are also in the, the seed and the skin. And so any of that that doesn't go into the juice, we then we've been extracting using supercritical CO2 extraction, which is a very environmentally benign, nice way of extracting the oil so that it's completely clean. So then that can be either used in skin products or used as a, as a supplement. Absolutely. Brilliant. So many uses for it by the sounds of it and so many potential benefits yeah. of it. 
and your product, so you make the juices and the buck Russian, was it? You mentioned the shot. So do you sell that locally? Just Yeah, we do a lot of direct orders these days. Mm-hmm. We've done during lockdown, we offer it through other local suppliers but it's very easy to deliver locally with an Edinburgh <laughs> and then we can send out the juices as well by post to people wanting to try them from further afield. And can you use the juice or the sea buckthorn in recipes and cooking? Does that work? Is yeah, it absolutely. really yeah. just to juice? Or I personally I tend not to heat it over about 60 degrees because there's the malic lactic acid change so you get a difference to the aroma but that's a, personal, that's a personal thing. So I would tend to use it more, you know, on salads or with fish or, you know, you can put it on chicken or what have you. You can also, if you dry the berries and grind it down, you can get umami flavours, more kind of earthy kind of. More uh, savoury flavours from it. Yeah, which, I mean, it's that's the fun thing with sea buckle is you can deconstruct the different parts of it and get a lot of different flavours to add to your diet. And the leaves have a sort of green tea kind of a flavour to them. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, I have tried sea buckthorn tea before. So is that yeah. using the leaves rather than the berries or a bit of both? Well, there's, yeah, Etiquette, local company, use our dry berries in their tea, but you can also drink the, the leaves as a green tea. And the leaves, they have a huge number of properties to them, which are highly underappreciated as yet. Certainly within the scientific community, we're all very excited about them. Yeah. They can help to protect you from radiation, for example, help to protect you against, to survive under oxidative stress as well. Yeah, a huge amount of research out there if, if people want to have a look. And you've been involved in some of the research being done by universities throughout Scotland, is that right? We've done a few different collaborations with different, basically different universities and and other companies as well. We first looked at the difference of the harvest time of the sea buckthorn berries if for the purposes of gin, brewing and distilling department, so that we could understand really the best sort of aroma profiles and stuff if you were wanting to use it for that purpose. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting. And then we worked with SRUC, Scottish Rural Colleges, on developing a sea buckthorn ginger beer and a water kefir as well uh, which unfortunately we haven't been able to actually roll out to sell ourselves but it's certainly very delicious and we worked with Bangor University on extracting the seed and the pulp oil and also we made a leaf wax the leaf wax is very very interesting because it's something that's not really it's a very new way of approaching the leaves but they have compared to other leaves as a vegan source of wax it has great potential it's incredibly green but it has a melting point of about 80 degrees and there's I mean I guess between four and six percent wax that could be extracted from the leaves which actually compared to other leaves is actually quite high so it's something that we're looking at and and seeing you know if, if there are applications for that, yeah. but we've just done our own following up from Bangor, though, having saved all of the pulp and the seed and dried it and hand separated it all, and sent it off the first time to actually get extracted ourselves with another company. So we just received the bottles back, which is very exciting. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there are some local companies, including Raven Botanicals, who are using them in their skincare products. Fascinating. Nice to have those sort of collaborations with other local companies where they're able to to use actually Scottish, properly Scottish, hand harvested and greatly loved to buckthorn oils in their products. Yeah, well, it's something that's so amazing just right on our doorstep here in Scotland. It's something that has so many applications and possibilities to use it. It sounds quite a, an amazing berry. Yeah, I mean, even like the woods, the, you know, the branches themselves, they have a very high heat value. And so, you know, if bushes must be cut down, what we are advocating for is that at least the material is all used so that it's not wasted because apart from anything else, it's a big amount of carbon that 
we released we had a project with Sustainable Thinking Scotland looking at the biochar potential so that if they need to be cut down, if, if these guys can actually make them into these blocks of biochar, that they, they can keep that carbon and store it so that it's not released back into the atmosphere. And so with Sea Buckthorn Scotland, do you have a small team of people working with you? Yeah, we have a very small team. Um, and we've had some lovely helpers during the harvest, um, particularly some wonderful chefs who have come out to, to help us. It's really nice to be able to show people who are using the berries in their work, where they come from, all the work that goes into providing the juice and so that they can actually, you know, feel and understand and, and see. And it's really fun. <laughs> we've had some really good days out. And also with the Royal Botanical Gardens as well. We've had some lovely volunteers from their herbology course who came to assist after we had a chat with them so that was really yeah. nice it sounds very kind of intensive for the few weeks that they're available at the right time to get them harvested yeah. and in the freezer absolutely <laughs> yeah and I mean, certainly the the onward processing of you know separating all of the material in some ways that actually just getting them in the freezers is is a small part of the work and then getting then removing all of the, <laughs> the thorns and, and leaves and everything so we've just got the, the clean berries for making juice that does take a good part of the year. And we also had another local charity, Choices, who came out to have an afternoon, mental health afternoon with us sh- shiggling about <laughs> um, shaking those berries, which is really fun. Yeah, I'm sure it is very kind of therapeutic and good for your mental health, just doing that and yeah. being involved in, it's yeah, in production. Is, isn't it? Very, very basic thing in some yeah. respect. But actually, I think sometimes we all need to just have something, you know, get back down to basics again to you know and if you're working with a spiky plant you really can't you know let your mind wander too much (laughs) or have a big box of plasters at the ready Uh, exactly (laughs) so have you had a little bit of kind of ideas from the chefs that you've chatted to and what sea buckthorn can be or how it can be used in recipes what foods does it go well alongside or how can it be used in foods there's a very nice lady, Lucia, down, well, she's right down south, but she came up to visit and it's always nice. To, there's a great community within the Sea Buckton community, within the Sea Buckton community, <laughs> a lot of love within the Sea Buckton community, <laughs> uh, where, you know, in terms of, you know, sharing things that we find or discover about it or different things mm-hmm. that we can do. And she makes a sort of a, a treacle, she calls it. I mean, she does heat the juice, but almost for a clear point so that you get a like a quite a sticky sort of I guess like I mean a bit like a sort of a sauce that you could put on ice cream that sort of thing but she also had an amazing recipe for a cheesecake where it was basically with sort of I think ginger nuts or digesters as, as you like on the bottom and then soft cheese with the sea buckthorn in the layer and then a sort of sea buckthorn gel on the top which yeah, it's not it's not too, not too difficult to, to do and you can play around with it you know in order to sounds a great combination so, and, yeah. and like you say with it or would it go well with ice cream I'm thinking sea buckthorn ice cream yeah they've got uh, the beach house cafe do some oh. very nice ice creams and sorbets with it oh yeah down in Portobello yeah, yeah. in Edinburgh and they do oh, yeah. they have shops as well actually they're one of the one of the few places where we release <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and also the um, Amelia in uh, Portobello who make beautiful homemade pastas they make a sea buckthorn uh, panna cotta which has sort of a sea buckthorn curd and then vanilla and then yeah again the lovely gel on the top it's really really delicious oh. <laughs> they put that from time to time it's worth looking out for because it's really really good it's okay. just as well the pots aren't too big because I mean the base is so delicious yeah um, god that does sound good and healthy as well so have you got any because this is a food connections podcast have you got any memorable foods kind of 
eating experience or do you have a favourite meal that you always like going back to or a favourite food memory that you want to share? One of the things I used to really enjoy when I was working in Gaza with the United Nations, the rare times we'd be allowed out to go to the Aldira Hotel and they used to make this, they had these beautiful clay pots that they would serve the food in and they had these prawns with this amazing rich tomato garlicky chili sauce so you'd have a bowl of that and then there's the gaza ducker salad which is basically it's like hot salad which had like fresh tomatoes and dill garlic and onions and chili and mm-hmm. you dip your, <laughs> dip your toasted bread into this amazing delicious hot spicy sort of salad sounds like it's bursting with flavor <laughs> yeah and i guess we associated it with those rare moments where you could sort of forget about just for a second, which I mean, always feel a bit guilty about, but important just sometimes to just have that moment to just appreciate, you know, here's the, the lovely view and the lovely food before then the, the sound of the next rocket coming down somewhere. Or, you know, very, very tough place for people to live in Gaza, but they just still yeah. do know how to uh, appreciate the small things in life and make the I best guess, of them. Yeah, I guess food can make even the worst environment a little bit better, perhaps. And food yeah. shared. I learned a huge amount about just the joy of the importance of mm-hmm. being able to share together also in, in Libya during the war on the front lines. There are times when, you know, all, all I desperately looked forward to was the times when, you know, some of the other medics would just say, you know, here, come and, come and enjoy a plate of, they called it umbakbaka. It's basically like macaroni cooked with either meat or fish in a tomato sauce, oh. which has sort of cumin and turmeric and paprika. And they call it umbakbaka because when they cook the pasta in the sauce with the meat or the fish, and when it's ready, it goes bok, 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 bok. So it's <laughs> and a huge, great big plate. And so we'd all have a spoon and you'd have, you know, you could have 20 people sitting around sharing the same meal. And it always felt like a great privilege, especially as a woman in, in these countries, to be invited in just as, as somebody else who was there. And, yeah. and helping. It's fascinating to hear, yeah, about your background and experience in all these places and the tough environments, and yeah, explaining how food can help connect or bring that community feeling and just help ground people and bring people together and have that moment of togetherness, I suppose, and escapism almost. Yeah, and also just all the regional differences. It's the same yeah. with the Umbakbaka. It was, you know, it was different in Misrata as in Tripoli or Derna. You know, each place they had their own particular slant on it. <laughs> Having discovered the ones with Umbakbaka, I really enjoyed <laughs> when I'd meet other Libyans, you know, within Libya or, you know, in other countries. I don't suppose you could, you could share some of that. <laughs> finding that every time there was a little twist on it was really fun. Yeah, I might try adding some spices next time I make some macaroni and <laughs> see what happens and some fish and, and meat into it. Yeah. Try something different. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing more about sea buckthorn because I think it is a, a berry that maybe a lot of people haven't even heard of and it grows really well in our climate here in Scotland. So uh, thank you for explaining more about what you do and your background and all about sea buckthorn. And where can people find you at your website? Seabuckthornscotland at gmail.com if you want to email me, otherwise www.seabuckthornscotland.com. Um, Brilliant. Or Instagram at Scotland. Excellent. I'll put all that in the show notes anyway, but fascinating work and thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for listening to this Food Connections podcast. Do check out the show notes for instant links related to this episode. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could give it a rating and leave a short review. That would mean a lot. And please do spread the word and tell others about it. If you have any comments or suggestions for future guests, do get in touch with me. My email is nutrition at Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.